Uh, Shannon and I got married in May of 1992, a little bit ago. Yeah, that's right. That's that's. Yay for me. Pray for Shannon. Anyway, uh, but uh, anyway, we got married back then. And when we did, we moved into a rural town in central Ohio. We got involved in a church there. And after about six months, there was a guy, an older guy in the congregation that took an interest in me and said, hey, Rick, uh, this Sunday after church, why don't you come on over? Have some lemonade, we'll have some snacks, we'll put the game on. And I thought, how cool. Like there's an older guy in the congregation that saw me, noticed me, cared about me, wanted to build a relationship with me, maybe pour into me. You know, so I was really excited. His name was Guy. And so uh, I went over to Guy's house. I never really made it in the house, though. So he had like a breezeway front porch screened in area. And uh, there were two chairs right there, two glasses of water, no lemonade, no snacks. No game, never saw the game. Didn't make it past those chairs, sit down. He sat there uh, and for over an hour, maybe two hours, grilled me on why, since I've been married for six months already, why my wife is not pregnant. Yeah, we could have been dealing with infertility. You don't know. We weren't, that wasn't our stuff. But, but, but he's like going at me because, listen, Guy had it in his mind. In the Old Testament, God said, Go forth, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And so Guy had it in his mind that to be a good Christian, to be acceptable to God, to be acceptable to me, you have to get your wife pregnant yesterday. Like, hurry up, man. And, and all good Christians, like, have these, like, I mean, huge vans full of children. And, you know, like, that's what it means to be a good Christian. And that was my first exposure to Jesus plus because I got to tell you, like I had very little desire to sit there and discuss my sex life with Guy. For, you know, like that just wasn't on my radar that day. But that was my first exposure to legalism. It's Jesus plus something else in order to be a quote-unquote good Christian. I mentioned that story because that's what Paul's dealing with in the book of Galatians, right? He's encountering Jesus plus type of teaching. And so we as a church during the summer, we're going through Galatians. And we notice that, like I told a story, Paul, as he begins the book, is just telling us a couple different stories for a couple chapters. And we're now in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. And again, Paul's telling a story. Here we go. It says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. And I included verse 6 here. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. All right, that's how chapter two starts out. Now, in order for you to get the context for what's going on there, I'm gonna immediately jump to Acts chapter 11. And so, so you get the chronology. Remember, Luke is traveling with Paul and he's recording some of these things and here's what we read there. It says, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. 
Remember, Antioch was the sending church for Paul and Barnabas. That, that's their home base, right? So they came down, uh, prophets from Jerusalem. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place during the days of Claudius. Good pr- parenthetical matter there. I know you were curious, so write that down. So anyway, he says, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. All right. So what's happening here is it says they came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now that's actually going north, but Jerusalem is high in elevation. So north, south, east, west, doesn't matter. You go up to Jerusalem or you come down from it. So they come down to Antioch and there, there's this revelation. This guy has a prophecy that, that there's going to be a huge famine. It's going to particularly hurt the Jews in, in Jerusalem. And so what they do is they raise money from this predominantly Gentile congregation to send money to their Jewish brothers and sisters. But here's the problem. No Venmo. That's just not a thing. They don't Venmo. So you actually have to walk the money over there and hand it to them. That's a long journey. So what they do is say, hey, who will we send? We'll send Barnabas and Saul. Remember, Saul is Paul. That's the same guy. Two different names, same guys. So that's Paul right there. And so Paul and Barnabas, they go up to Jerusalem. They deliver the famine relief money to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And while he is there, now we get back to our passage. While he is there, he decides to have the side meeting privately with some people. And what he says is, I put before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. Now, what is that gospel? That is, remember, the pure gospel, no additives. Jesus paid it all. We don't work for it. It's all grace. We put our faith in Christ, which means you don't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. You don't have to get baptized. You don't have to speak in tongues. You don't have to work hard at the rules. You don't have to vote in a certain way. None of that. In fact, you don't even have to get your wife pregnant. Don't be that guy. Right? Don't be that guy. So, so that's not it. So none of those things are what make us acceptable to God or acceptable to each other. It's simply the work of Jesus, which means Christianity is not do, it's done. Right? Like it's not good instruction, it's good news. It's settled. So Paul wants to put this gospel before them. Why? He says to make sure... I was not running or had not run in vain. And I know we have a lot of runners in our congregation. I have bad news for you. All running is in vain. <laughs> I, I just got to, like, I used to be a, a runner, right? I found out that, like, you have to keep working at it or it just goes away. It's all in vain. Like, if you run seriously for, ten, for two years and then stop for 10, you got nothing. It's not permanent. It's in vain, Okay. Sorry, side note there. But Paul, he wants to make sure that he's not running in vain. So what is that? Is Paul looking for their endorsement upon the gospel? No. Oh, don't, don't get that misunderstand. That's not what's going on. Remember in chapter 1, we read, Paul said, listen, even if we or an angel or anyone else preaches to you a different gospel, let him be accursed. Paul's not looking for endorsement. He already knows he received the gospel from Jesus himself that's endorsement enough. That's validation enough. The gospel's not in question here. In fact, Paul even kind of gives hints towards that, where he says, look, he says, they, those who seemed to be influential, not that they were influential. 
I included verse 6 here, and it says this, and for those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Boom. It's in the Greek. It doesn't come through in the English, but boom's in there, right? And so he says, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So what's going on is Paul's opponents, sometimes called Judaizers, they would be pointing to the apostles in Jerusalem as like varsity apostles. And Paul's just like JV. And so those are our guys, and they agree with us. And, and so have you heard the phrase, robbing Peter to pay Paul? Okay, these guys would be exalting Peter to, to spite Paul. That's what they're doing. And, and Paul's like, so? God shows no partiality. God's no respecter of persons. That's not how he plays. In fact, next week, we're going to see a passage where Peter gets really off course and Paul has to get in his face. Paul is used to correct Peter. Because God says he shows no partiality. Now, two applications we can get from this already. One is for inside the church. One is for outside the church. For inside the church, the first thing we can say with this is, listen, there is no celebrity Christianity. Celebrity Christianity is a plague on the church, particularly in America these days. And it is gross, and it's killing us. And you look at this, and evidently God is not into celebrity Christianity at all. He just doesn't care about that. We have one celebrity, and that's Jesus. And that that position's full. It's filled. All right? So no celebrities. Second application we can get out at this point has to do with kind of outside the church. So, so we have a Bible, all right? That means God has spoken, and since God has spoken, the matter is settled. We're not looking for endorsement. We're not looking for validation. So when you have some other source, uh, who, somebody who seems influential, professor, politician, YouTuber, podcaster, blogger, maybe the culture says this and everybody agrees, doesn't matter. When our God speaks, the matter is settled. And we go with him every time, okay? So that's the second thing. It's an issue of authority that we can get out of that. All right, so here we go. So Paul is not looking for endorsement. Then what is this part about not running in vain? The question on the table at this point is this. Will there be two churches or one? Okay? Will we divide into a Jewish church and a Gentile church? Will Jewish ethnocentricity flow into the Christian experience? Has Paul run in vain? Paul's like, if that happens, I feel like I've run in vain. And so, catch this. It is not a question of what is the gospel. It is a question of, will we be true to the gospel? That's what's going on in the passage. And you'll see that as we continue. So we pick it up in verse 3. It says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Nothing. 
great question. Why is Titus there? Do, do you want to know? Like he has, he doesn't have a speaking part. Like, why is Titus? Titus is a prop. Titus is a visual aid. Like, like he, listen, he clearly believes in Jesus. No, grow, go. He knows Jesus personally. He grows in his relationship with him. He goes and advances his kingdom. This is a legit believer, but he is clearly an uncircumcised Gentile believer. So I want you to imagine the conversation before they all left Antioch, right? Hey, Titus, you're coming with us. Oh, okay. Uh, do, do I have a speaking part? What do you want me to say? Don't say anything. Okay, you, you don't have to say anything. Just stand there. Well, do you need me then to carry the money? No, we got that. What, what, what do you need me to do? Well, just stand there and look like a Gentile. <laughs> Chew on a pork chop or something. You know, like, and, then, and, then, and, then, and then I do want you to say something. I want you to say, I love Jesus. And let's see what happens. Let's just see what happens. So he's a prop. That's what's going on. <laughs> and can we just acknowledge how awkward this passage is? Keep in mind, the issue is circumcision. How'd that go down? Titus, show him you're not circumcised. No, Titus, I'm kidding, man. Put that away. Like, oh, like, yeah, that's just weird. We don't do that at Redemption Chapel. Right? That's not a thing here. Right? That's not a thing. What Paul is doing is he is forcing the issue. The question is this. Will they treat Titus differently? Will they pressure Titus to get circumcised? Will they say, Titus, it's Jesus plus something else? Or, or will they extend fellowship to Titus? Will they treat him like a real brother, a full brother, a true brother? You're a brother in Christ. What's going to happen? Let's see. Let's see. Because listen, folks, these things are really easy to debate in the abstract. It gets a little bit trickier when the dude's standing right there. What are you going to do with him? So Paul cleverly brings Titus with him. And that reminded me a little bit of, of Jackie Robinson. You know, Jackie Robinson was the guy that broke the race barrier in professional baseball, right? And, and so what's going on there is it's like Jackie's standing right there. What are you going to do? He's clearly black, but he's clearly a great baseball player. And he'd make our team a lot better. And so maybe in your racism, you want segregation. You want a black league and a white league. But he's right there. He's black and he's awesome. And so we let him on our team. And that's what's going on there. Titus is Paul's Jackie Robinson. Breaking the race barrier because he's standing right there. So what they did is they received... Titus as a brother. They required nothing of him. Turns out Paul is correct. It's not Jesus plus. It's pure gospel, no additives. You see that at the end. Look, see the last line. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. Let me ask you, what did they add? Nothing. What should we add? Nothing. Unfortunately, it doesn't always go down like that. And so Paul says in the passage that there were these false brothers who snuck in. Okay, false brothers. It's like chinos, right? Christians in name only. They're, they're false brothers, and they're party crashers. This was a private party. They didn't have an invite. They snuck in, and they snuck in in order to spy out people's freedom and say, stop it. Stop it. Right? These are people like, they see you being free in Christ, having fun in Christ, and like, no, 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 uh-uh, stop it. That's what they're there to do. Listen, legalistic folks desperately want you to be as miserable as they are. And so they work hard at it. 
They work hard at it. And so they use the Bible as a hammer to pound people into submission instead of a roadmap to freedom and joy. They desperately want you to be miserable too. In fact, he specifically said they were there to bring us into slavery. Now, in order to understand what's going on in Galatians a little bit more, I want to talk about our nation's history a little bit. It's just last weekend we celebrated Juneteenth, right? Juneteenth was just last Saturday. And some of you might know the history there, some might not. So, so what happened is Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator, declared the Emancipation Proclamation on New Year's Day, 1863. Okay? Now, that was a, an executive order. There was no court challenge to it, so it has the force of law. At that point, the slaves are all legally free, but we would have to fight a war first. And so it wouldn't be until April 9th of 1865, more than two years later, that the last southern general surrendered. And at that point, the slaves are finally free. Or are they? Because here's the thing, advocates of slavery don't give up easily. They're invested in the system that they have built and they've been a part of. So the deep south was not going to cede that territory very easily. And so what they did is they worked really hard to get those who were legally free, technically free, really free, but to get them to think like slaves and live like slaves and act and work like slaves. And so the plantation owners had a a phrase, they'd say, keep them ignorant, and you keep them in the fields. Now, sometimes the slaves didn't know about their freedom. Sometimes they knew about the emancipation, but through threats and violence, they kept them thinking and living and working like slaves. So, it wasn't until June 19th of 1865 that... The, the news finally got down all the way down to Gavelson, Texas, which is like the last far corner of the Deep South. And Union Army General Gordon Granger showed up and established freedom for the slaves. June 19th gets called Juneteenth and gets celebrated. It reminds us, as, as Fannie Lou Hamer said, nobody's free until everybody's free. Nobody's free until everybody's free. Now, unfortunately, our nation then uh, started some other things like the peonage system and criminal leasing and redlining and Jim Crow and all that. All these systems designed to keep people who are not slaves to try to get them to live like slaves. All right, so why go through all that history? That helps us understand what Paul is battling in the letter to the Galatians. This is what he's dealing with. Listen, people, I want you to catch this clearly. The great emancipator, Jesus Christ, has declared you free. He paid for it. He set you free. Now, there are some who are invested in a system of slavery who desperately want to keep you ignorant of that. They want to keep you thinking and living and working like a slave. That's what Paul's dealing with right there. They want to keep you in the fields. See, Jesus plus anything else turns freedom into slavery. John Stott said it this way. He said, the Christian 
has been set free from the law in the sense that his acceptance before God depends entirely upon God's grace in the death of Jesus Christ received by faith. Pure gospel, no additives. But look at this next sentence. To introduce the works of the law and to make our acceptance depend on our obedience to rules and regulations was to bring a free man into bondage again. And sometimes it happens in our midst regarding Christian freedom, not, not through ignorance or not through threat. Sometimes it happens by our choice. We choose slavery. Like the Jews said, Moses, take us back to Egypt, to slavery there. We choose it. Uh, so I'll tell you another story. There's a guy named Peterson. Peterson was arrested in Vienna, Austria for theft so he was in prison for two years. He got out at 23 years old. He was rearrested just two weeks later. But the details of that are interesting. So the police were called to the prison he used to be incarcerated in. They were called back out to that prison for a suspected jailbreak. What they found was Peterson was on the roof trying to break back in. That's weird, right? Well, here's what he said. He said, life is so much easier on the inside they feed you, do your washing, and let you watch TV, which I can tell you is a lot more than my mom does. <laughs> so I thought if I could sneak back in, I would blend in with the others and the screws wouldn't notice. That's us. Sometimes we choose slavery instead of freedom. One of the reasons we do that is because uh, freedom is messy. Right? I mean, freedom is really messy. When you first get freedom... It's met with immaturity. Do you guys remember turning 21? How'd that go? Right? So it's freedom is met with immaturity. So what the legalist wants to do is say, hey, we can't have mess. Let's keep it clean. So let's make extra rules. In fact, nobody can drink. Nobody can drink. Nobody. And therefore, there won't be any mess. We'll keep it clean and we choose slavery. But the problem is that traps us in immaturity. Now, time out for a second. We have a lot of recovering addicts in our congregation. I'm not talking to you. You are free to make all kinds of rules for yourself. And you need to, right? You got to. I get that. But you're, we aren't free to make rules for other people. And, and that's the issue, right? So, listen. If you give people freedom, yes, it will be messy, but it is through that mess that is the path to maturity. So the Christian legalist not only wants to keep us as slaves, but they want to keep us as children and not let us mature. And we can't choose that. We can't choose that. Oh, by the way, this stuff is really sneaky. It like sneaks in. It wasn't invited. They party cry. Like it sneaks in and we don't even know it. Like, so for example, we are free here at Redemption Chapel, right? Like, one of the th freedoms we enjoy is we don't care how you dress. We just care that you dress. <laughs> like we got one dress code, no naked. <laughs> Put clothes on and we're good with you, right? And so we dress pretty casual and we love that freedom and we're good with that. Here's what happens. Somebody comes in the door wearing a coat and tie and we look down on them. What just happened? We're not free. We just changed the rules. We're legalists. You see that? 
This stuff is so sneaky. It sneaks in before you know it. And so what Paul says is that he had to fight for it. He said, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. What that means is Paul is fighting not for his ego, not to be right. Paul is fighting to bless other people. To bless us so the gospel might come to us. We'd say, well, can't we compromise a little bit? Like, listen. All right. We're going to eliminate all that Jewish stuff, all the Jewish, uh, Jewish diet, the kosher diet, all that stuff goes. But listen, just so Jerusalem can save face, just so the Judaizers get something, they seem really bunged up on the circumcision thing. Can we let them keep that? Paul says, no. We don't yield even for a moment. Remember, it's not an issue of what you add or how much you add. It's that you add. And if you add anything to the gospel, it goes from pure to poison. We just can't have it. So what did they add? Nothing. They added nothing. Now, Paul, at this point then, he's fighting not only... For Titus, that's an individual effect. But he's also fighting for something else in the global church. He's fighting for one church. We'll see that play out as we look at the last part of our passage here. Picking up in verse 7. It says, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. All right, there are fingerprints all over this passage of one gospel. Notice he says the gospel, not a gospel. He doesn't say there's one for the uncircumcised. Oh, and there's another one for the circumcised. No, there's one gospel. I don't don't know if you guys are good at counting. Let's count together. Ready? One. Good, we're done. That's all you need. Ready? How many times was Jesus crucified? One. How many times did Jesus rise from the dead? One. How many Gospels are there? One. And only one. That's it. That's it. Now, you see in there it talks about Peter and then it talks about Cephas. That's the same guy. You know that? Uh, Cephas is Aramaic, Peter is Greek, uh, it's a, it means the rock, remember Jesus renamed him, so it's the same guy. I want you to catch that, because after this experience of this private little deal that Paul's having during this visit, later on, and we'll read about it in Acts 15, what happens is there's a later council that is more public, it's more formal, it's more final, they debate the same question, Can, uh, does, does a Gentile need to become Jewish in order to become Christian? It's called the Jerusalem Council. And I want you to hear Peter's words while he's there at that council. He stands up, he says, Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. 
but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Did you catch that? It's not one gospel for the Jews and another for the Gentiles. It's not work for the Jews and grace for the Gentiles. No, it's grace for everyone. It's the same. So law and works and legalism, it doesn't work. It never worked for the Jews. It's not working for the Jews. So why would it work for the Gentiles? Don't put God to the test. Don't spit in God's face. That doesn't work. So Peter says it's one gospel. It's all grace. It's not earned. And that's for Jew and Gentile alike. But... Oh, but if you look back at the passage, one of the things you might notice is this. That one gospel does get contextualized into different cultures. Like, you got to think this through. Am I taking the gospel to the circumcised or the uncircumcised? That's important. That matters. You got to think that through. Because what this is talking about is the beauty of the one gospel of Jesus Christ that permeates various different cultures around the globe. And binds us together in one family. Sometimes we're ashamed of not all Christian missions, but some of Christian missions got married together with cultural colonialism to colonize a people. This passage is a clarion call that frees the gospel from any cultural colonization. So what we learn is that it will not be Jesus plus being Jewish. But it will also not be Jesus plus being European. And oh, by the way, it will not be Jesus plus being American. That's not a thing. That's not a thing. It's just the pure gospel of Jesus Christ that frees unique cultures around the globe to join us in the family of faith and express that in their beautiful cultural way. It's gorgeous if you've ever seen it. So, here's how it works. If you're ministering to Jews, don't bring pork chops. And if you're ministering to alcoholics, don't bring beer. Does that make sense? Like, so in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that's where Paul would say, essentially says, to the Jew I became a Jew, to the Gentile I became a Gentile, I became all things to all people, that by all means I might win some. With the one gospel, he adjusts. So your audience changes. And because your audience changes, your methods change. Change your language. You change your approach. But while you change your methods, you never change the message. The message is the one gospel that never changes. But it does get contextualized across different cultures. That's beautiful. Nonetheless, one of, one of the things you see in there is though it gets contextualized to different cultures, we're still one Church. One church. See in there where it says, they extended to me the right hand of fellowship. There's one God, there's one gospel, therefore there's one church. There might be different cultural expressions, I get that. But the right hand of fellowship means this. We're family. We're family together. And because we're family, we care for each other despite our cultural differences. Like, look at the last sentence there. Did that strike you as odd? It's only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Wait a minute. I thought it wasn't Jesus plus. Did it just become Jesus plus giving money to poor people? Did, is this Jesus plus all of a sudden? What happened there? Okay, remember, 
This is why I started out with the context in Acts chapter 11, so that you would remember that the whole impetus to Paul going up to Jerusalem was a predicted famine, uh, so they were going to be poor, and they weren't going to have money, and they wouldn't have food, and so they took money to take care of their famine, family up there, right? So Paul collected money from Gentile churches to give it to Jewish Christians. You see that? One family. So no, you don't need to be Jewish in order to be a Christian, but we're still one family. There's one gospel. There's one church. And here's what's happening. Legalism threatened to separate us into two churches, Jewish and Gentile. But if we're not careful, our freedom will separate us into two churches as well. Because now I'm free. Now I don't have to care about you. I can wash my hands of you. I can walk away from you. Your concern doesn't need to be my concern. And the apostle said, no. Remember, the, remember, we are one family, one church. And what that means then is even if somebody is of a different ethnicity or a different race or a different nationality, if they are a brother or sister in Christ, they are family. And their concern becomes mine. That's my family. Do you get that? That's family. And we've got to do something about it. you see that? They didn't say, hey, we'll pray for you. They raised money and walked it down there. They did something about it. Because their concern was our concern because we're family. Yet, despite cultural differences, and those differences are beautiful, the gospel binds us together as one family. Don't miss that part. All right, Paul has told a, a, another great story. And now I want to apply that. So how do we apply that? Well, a couple of things came to mind for me. One, remember, we have to avoid celebrity Christianity. Fight that with every fiber of your being. It is a plague on the church today. We have one celebrity, and that's Jesus. Secondly, be free. And you'll have to fight in your heart to be free. Because slavery is so sneaky, it wants to slip back in. And so you're going to have to preach the gospel to yourself over and over and over so that you steep in grace. Because when you steep in grace, it will change you. And you'll discover, I'm really loved by God? Like I'm secure in his love? Listen, Christians, we can be some of the most insecure people on the planet. And that's crazy talk. We ought to be secure, but when we're insecure, that's law, not grace. That's what got us there. And so you start to hear that whisper in your ear. You're not good enough. You're not righteous enough. You're not holy enough. You see what you did? How could God love you? And at that moment, you must re-preach the gospel to yourself daily. To say it's not Jesus plus, it's just the work of Christ. And so you align your thoughts to the gospel and you ask your emotions to come along for the ride. Be free. Be free, people. And then as we are free, what we're going to do is let others be free. Listen, let's be freedom people. Let's be grace people. Grace should make us less petty, less judgy, less critical. Unfortunately, sometimes Christians are the opposite of that. Let's, let, let's lift others up. Let's, let's not use the Bible to pound people into cement, but as a roadmap to freedom and grace. Let's be the freedom people. 
that we should be as Christians. Now, another thing that this goes at is that um, in the passage, we should take the gospel to every culture around the world. Yes, that's part of our charge. But don't miss the next one, and that is we do that while respecting those cultures and loving those cultures. There's no cultural colonialism to be had here. And we hold on to this, that we act as one big church family. Which means I love my brothers and sisters of different cultures. Sometimes they're different cultures living within our same country. But we love our brothers and sisters. We are connected to them. We are committed to them. And their concern is my concern. And I do something about it. And then another thing I want us to do is this. Let's cheer other local churches on. Okay, so one big church, capital C church. But let's admit, there are little C churches, local churches. This is a local church, a local expression of the capital C church. And I want to cheer other churches on. So one of the things I've done over the last year, because being a pastor got really hard over the last year. So uh, I, I started something called Shield Wall, where we welcome uh, other pastors from around the area to come in. Uh, and we go shoulder to shoulder in a shield wall and we protect each other and take care of each other because I wanted to love and encourage them and I need their love and encouragement, right? So, so I, I'm a fan. I want to be a kingdom Christian. I want it to be in my mind bigger than just Redemption Chapel. Our staff team, like sometimes other churches contact, hey, how do you do this? Man, go spend time with them. Well, it'll cost me. Good, go spend that time because we, we want to be fans of Jesus' church. Listen, I love Redemption Chapel. I, I adore this church, but I also realize that Redemption Chapel could disappear tomorrow and somehow Jesus' kingdom might roll along just fine. Right? It's, it's way bigger than us. And I want to be a fan of what Jesus is doing in his churches around the area. So I want you to do the same. If you're a member of Redemption Chapel, I want you to affirm other churches. I want you to affirm other pastors. I want you to love them and wish success upon them because their success is our success. We're family. So let's cheer other churches on. And then there's one last thing I want you to do. Never ask somebody why they aren't pregnant. Just write that down, okay? (laughs) Hold on to that if you get nothing else this morning, okay? Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we uh, absolutely love you. And uh, Father, we want to thank you. We want to rejoice right now that you are the great emancipator. You paid for it. You proclaimed it. You set us free. And yet we have a stupid proclivity towards slavery down deep within us. And so, Father, would you continue to massage the gospel deeper and deeper into our lives that we would be grace people. We would be freedom people in our own lives. We would give it away to others. And then, Father, would we be people who love our brothers and sisters who maybe are culturally different than us. And that love would be an active love. Take us there, Lord, please, for your own kingdom, for your own glory, for your own family. And I pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.